All right, all right, all right. Welcome back to the Misfit Nation. When I joined the Army in 1993, it was due to the influence from my biggest mentor, my father, Tom the Torch LaMonica. He served in the Army just prior to Vietnam. He also introduced me to many of the guys he grew up with and his friends from Jersey City who made that trip to Indochina and fought for our country. Their stories indirectly influenced me to join the Army. Their generation paved the way through hardship for our generation of veterans. They endured undue hardships from their own countrymen. They were spit on when they got home, called baby killers, and were treated like genuine crap. Even the VA treated them like crap. This, of course, is not the case now, as veterans have a plethora of organizations that are set up to help them, and everyone thanks them for their service. Our next guest was part of this generation as well. He served in Vietnam as an infantry officer and Chinook pilot, so he has stories from both the air perspective and the ground perspective of this war. So let's get Mr. Larry Freeland, 101st Airborne Division veteran and now author on here. Welcome to the Misfit Nation, Mr. Larry Freeland. How you doing, Larry? Doing fine. And yourself? Awesome. Doing great here. A uh, little travel today, uh, but uh, I'm doing well. I, I was able to wake up this morning and stay upright. Well, that's uh, that's an accomplishment. As uh, as we were talking earlier, uh, I look forward to waking up every morning at my age. So it's it's a good day when you do. That's right, sir. <laughs> so if you don't mind, Larry, if you'd like to introduce yourself to the audience, go back as far as you want, and then kind of bring it closer to where we are now. Okay, great. Um, well, I'm uh, I'm a retired uh, retired fellow. Uh, a little old. Uh, my early days uh, when I graduated from college back in the 68, so I, 60, I was in 64 to 68. Um, Vietnam War uh, was going on. And of course, in 67, 68, it really picked up. And every every male was subject to the draft. And I certainly was one of them. I uh, tried to get into the Navy aviation program back then and, and uh, didn't quite make it. Then uh, tried to get in the Air Force aviation program. I wanted to fly back then. Uh, my dad was a career Air Force uh, officer for 30 years and kind of grew up with it. Uh, and I did get accepted to the Air Force uh, flight program. <clears throat> when I graduated in June of 68 uh, from the University of South Florida in Tampa, uh, my draft board, as all the uh, fellows back then uh, put up with, was constantly after you in college. You had to you had to post with them every quarter or semester that you were still in school. And once you finished, uh, they would come after you pretty much. And they did me and uh, they didn't give me a deferment. I couldn't start my Air Force uh, training until like October. They were so backed up. Uh, but the uh, draft board wouldn't give me a deferment. So I ended up getting drafted into the Army. Make a long story short, when I was in there, they were having been a college graduate, anybody with a college degree. Uh, the Army was trying to get him to go to OCS, and uh, eventually, uh, after I got assigned that advanced infantry training, I thought, well, I think I'll try officer school um, just to prolong my potentially not having to go to Vietnam, but went to OCS in Fort Benning Infantry, got out of that, was there six months, applied to flight school and was accepted, and then spent a year uh, in flight school between Texas and uh, Alabama, Fort Rucker. And eventually, I'd been in the Army a little over two years when I was finally sent over to Vietnam in January the 3rd of 1971 uh, as an infantry officer and a CH-47 helicopter pilot. I spent a year there, signed with the 101st. I participated uh, in a major operation, which I'll probably chat about a little later in our, in our conversation today, uh, called Lam San 719. It was an invasion uh, by the South Vietnamese forces into Laos, trying to cut off the Ho Chi Minh Trail supply line down to the south. Uh, we reactivated Quezon, expanded it, built some additional heliports, and the 101st was charged with providing the South Vietnamese Army uh, with all the uh, helicopter support. And we had about 650 helicopters in the, in the division at the time. So we spent two months supporting them in their Laos operation, and we had to augment ourselves by about another 100 helicopters. And again, I'll probably cover a little bit of that later. Uh, when when uh, that ended, uh, 
I still had about 10 months left, uh, nine months left in country. The war was winding down. The President Nixon was uh, Vietnamizing the war and turning it over to the South. So our intensity of operations, both on the ground and in the air, and ICOR, which was closest to the North Vietnamese border, uh, wound, wound down quite a bit. And um, so it, it slowed down, and we didn't have a whole lot of activity. We still had some, but the first four months of my tour with the Laos thing and the, and the DMZ stuff that was going on was pretty intense. And then the last seven or eight months wasn't too bad. Came home, uh, was stationed at Benning for a year and a half. Uh, assigned to the uh, general staff. And then I uh, went ahead and got out of the service uh, in September of 1973. I'd always wanted to work for a bank, so I, I was very fortunate to get hired on with Trust Company in Atlanta. And uh, I'm really quite proud of this. Uh, the general I worked for and the colonels I worked for, when they found out I was getting out, they, you know, they supported me and they actually made phone calls to presidents of several banks and chairman of the boards of different companies to ask that they give me an interview. And I ended up getting seven or eight interviews from different major companies, and most of them offered me a job. So I was, I was quite pleased with that. Uh, and that's a lesson to be learned for a lot of folks. If you do a good job and you have some mentors around you, they'll potentially help you uh, move on up or down the, up the chain, so to speak, or in, in another opportunities. And these, these senior officers certainly uh, did me a, a solid and helped me kick off my banking career, which ran for about 28 years here in the Atlanta area. Uh, took early retirement from that, became a consultant in Atlanta for about financial consultant for three years, and then just got kind of tired of the corporate life and the corporate uh, scenario and always thought I'd be a, I wanted to be a teacher. So make a long story short, I got into uh a college instructing for about seven years and uh, taught at a college leadership and management development. Um, took full retirement about seven years ago when I turned, uh, well, no, it's 10 years ago now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm going to be 75. I took full retirement at 65 and just uh, been spending my time doing a lot of volunteer stuff uh, in different for different causes and uh, traveling and I've got a Corvette. I love Corvettes, and we do a little road trips on Corvettes and go to a lot of what, what's called Petit Le Mans races. We're big Le Mans fans. And uh, matter of fact, we're going next month to the uh, Le Mans here in Atlanta, four-day event. And then uh, kind of brings us to my book. Uh, you want me to chat about that a little bit? Uh, let's go into some of your uh... – nonprofit stuff you've done. You have seen you've done stuff with uh, veteran organizations. And and like me, you got involved with Cystic Fibrosis Foundation. How'd you get involved with uh, Cystic Fibrosis? Well, that's a good question. Wow. That's a small community. <laughs> uh, my oldest granddaughter, Elena Goodrow, was born with CF. She's 17 now, turned 17 on April, uh, uh, March the 3rd. Uh, but born here in Atlanta. And we almost lost her when she was born. She had a a severe stomach blockage and spent her first eight weeks in intensive care here at uh, in the in the child children's hospital at emory i uh, won't go into all that but uh, she struggled there for for a good while and eventually pulled through and uh, first several years of her life was kind of nick and tuck uh, with breathing and digestive issues but i'm happy to report she's doing quite well and very active uh 17 year old uh, young lady but with with her birth and the uh, issues she she uh, uh, she was putting up with, uh, I was just drawn into doing what I could to help. And the more I learned about CF and and uh, what what needed to be done for it, my wife and I became very active and ended up being involved in three to four major events uh, every year, supporting the foundation and helping to raise awareness and funds for that. Uh, we, we've We've been involved in a, one of the major events, was called Wine and Roses, uh, an annual white tie gala here. And we just finished our 13th year being on the committee for that. We just had the event two weeks ago uh, for this year and uh, enjoyed doing that. A lot of great people involved. And it's made a big difference because when Elena was first born uh, 17 years ago, the life expectancy of folks born with CF uh, was in, the, I think, the 30s uh, or low 30s, and now it's well into the high 40s and early 50s. There's been tremendous advancement in medications and treatments, particularly the last five years. 
I'm happy to say that Elaine has been a beneficiary of a lot of that. So we just felt compelled to do what we could. And that took up, a, did and does take up a lot of our time right there with CF. How'd you get involved in it? Uh, when I was when I was growing up, my one of my good buddies on my street, uh, Kirk, he was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis. We were the same age. And by the time we got to high school, uh, 1987-ish, 88, graduating in 88, 87, he was going to the hospital in New York a lot because of different infections and different things. He used to have to go once a month and such. And yeah. we'd go visit him in the hospital in New York and, and see him. By the time he got to his junior or senior year, he'd seen a lot of the kids that he was going to the hospital with had lost their battle. Yeah. So he kind of just gave up hope at that point. So it took a lot for all of us to go over there and, and pump him up and have him actually be at our graduation in 88. Mm-hmm. Then uh, flash forward, I joined the Army. He he went about, he became an EMT. He was doing great things. Uh, 2005, I got stationed in Anniston, Alabama, and met a good buddy of mine, Randy Bright, whose uh, stepdaughter at the time, Haley, had cystic fibrosis. Oh, and wow. one day he said, you want to help us with this fundraiser? It was like a, a blind auction, I think it was at that time. Mm-hmm. And you just go around putting stuff in there, and, uh, and they did a walk with the candles. He said, I wonder what we could do better. So we came up with the Haley's team, Twilight 5K run in Alliston, Anniston, Alabama at that point. Yeah. Uh, this year would be the 16th, or next year would be the 16th year of it. We had to take two years off because of COVID, of course. But hopefully this year we're uh, able to come back and running. In 2012, on my final deployment, uh, Kirk got sick again. He was now 42 years old. And uh, it was June, June 18th. I got wounded. At uh, I think it was four in the afternoon, and he had passed away about the same exact time. Oh my gosh! I was in Afghanistan; he was in New Jersey. So yeah, it was kind of kind of crazy, but that, that's how I got hooked in with uh, cystic fibrosis. And it's a small world because there's only numbers vary a little bit, but thirty three to thirty five thousand people in this country living with it. So right population, incredible, but it's a deadly disease. They've they've made a lot of progress, but. Uh, uh, it's still, um, you know, it's still a tough one to have, and one of the more expensive ones too to have. Yes, uh, I know with Haley, uh, because of our help with the with the race, the at UAB uh, University of Alabama Birmingham, they were able to use experimental stuff on her and help her progress and do better. She graduated uh, from college. Uh, well, she graduated last year, but she's actually going to walk in December, just yeah. to say, just to show that she walked, and that'll be a great time for everybody. Oh, that's cool. That's good. Yeah. yeah. The, the, most of the uh, CF patients I've uh, been around uh, through our involvement are really, with almost almost all cases, are, are bright young people that are uh, highly motivated. They have to be because of the regiment they have to, to go through virtually every day. To, they're battling for their life virtually every day. And there's things they've got to do just to maintain their health and try not to get sick. So they're a pretty disciplined bunch of young people. They have it. So, and I think everyone that I've met, like you said, I think they all take the challenges outside of the fight that they have for their own life. They take every challenge that they have to be successful at other things as they have to do it to, to make sure they do things right. And they all wind up being successful wherever they go. That's true. Well, we're very proud of Elena. She's, uh, she's one that always uh, grew up kind of wanting to be uh, an actress, uh, a singer and those kind of things. And, uh, She's done quite a bit of that uh, as a young person. Uh, she writes her own music and, and plays uh, uh, not a violin, but uh, a, a, not a banjo either, a, a guitar, and uh, plays the harp. She, she, she actually played for our last Wine and Roses a couple of weeks ago. That's the second year in a row where she's been our big entertainment for the cocktail hour when you've got three, 400 people wandering around drinking and eating hors d'oeuvres and listening to a young lady with CF play the harp. It's, it's quite an experience. <laughs> that kind of puts a little light on the subject. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it draws attention to it. And, uh, but we're, we're all quite proud of her. She, she's motivated and done, done quite well. And we just, we hope that she continues and, and you know, uh, one of the goals she's setting for herself. But that's uh, that's one of the that's the big reason we've been involved in that. And since getting out of the army, I've always done what I could for uh, uh, veteran uh, groups and organizations. Uh, mostly been I call it under the radar, helping where I can. Uh, 
when I got out of the army in 73 from Vietnam, like most fellows, and I don't speak for them, I just, I'll just speak for myself. I, I just wanted to put it behind me and, and, and basically forget about it. Uh, what I didn't throw away or give away, a few things I kept, I packed in a box and stuck it away. And I really didn't uh, pay much attention to any of it until well into the late 80s. But I did, uh, like I said, I did help folks whenever I could uh, in the community that were veterans and, and, and organizations, but I didn't get active in them. I just would do what I could, like say under the radar. It wasn't until the late nineties that I, that I was kind of pulled back into doing some stuff and uh, it was my wife that, that did it. Uh, she encouraged me to, to get active again and, and join an organization or, or some way, not some veterans organization and, and uh, you know, just, just become a part of it. Make a long story short, I did. I joined a Veterans Alliance down in Forsyth County here in Georgia and coming uh, back in the mid-90s that had just started up. And it was a unique group. It had uh, it started in like June and by December it had grown from almost 10, 15 fellows to over 100 fellows. And about half were World War II veterans, the Korean War veterans, and then Vietnam veterans. And uh, I enjoyed that group. We... Uh, we formed ourselves. We went out and got our uniforms, new uniforms, spiffed them up. And we did that because up in our area and, and back in the, in the 90s and forward, really, the military wasn't providing much in the way of military support for military funerals. And uh, in North Georgia and, and Central Georgia, north of Atlanta, there are a lot of veterans retired and living in this area and dying uh, World War II, Korean War, Korean and, of course, Vietnam guys. So we took it upon ourselves to uh, form five teams of 15 men each. And we got a hold of a bunch of rifles, practice drilled. And we literally were performing military uh, funerals uh, four and five times a week with 15 man squads uh, from Atlanta North uh, in various cemeteries around, around North Georgia. I personally participated over the years in about 60 of them. So uh, that was... Wow gratifying uh, experience uh, and we did uh, flag ceremonies and stuff like that and, and for different uh, major events where they needed a, a flag uh, flag group to present the you know the colors during the opening ceremonies right that was an organization that really did some good and uh, you know met a need that wasn't wasn't being met in this area uh, so I kind of phased out of that several years back all the World War II fellows unfortunately passed away and the Korean War guys pretty much and the, the membership uh, dropped over the years to just maybe a short a small number of fellas and I got pulled in another direction and got to doing stuff other stuff so kind of backed out of that one I did that for about 10 years but that was very gratifying I still am involved in helping where I can and other things but not to the extent of that that uh, 10 years with that association like you said, when uh, when your generation was coming out of Vietnam, there wasn't a lot there for you guys when you came out. There wasn't a lot of love for you guys when you came home. There was a, a lot of things that you guys went through, paved the way for our generation of, of veterans as we come out, came out of the global war on terrorism or, or Desert Storm, I guess, would be the first major portion of this. Yeah. And that there's a lot more uh, organizations around now. And, and then units, of course, now actually support all these uh, ceremonies, uh, the funeral details, uh, opening ceremonies and stuff. So you kind of phased, phased yourself out of that as well. Yeah, my age, I mean, I'm still, I consider myself healthy, get out and, and, and I'm active, but um, between my grandchildren and, and the travels and, and now my riding, uh, I kind of want to, you know, not being selfish, I want to do a little bit for myself <laughs> and then, help, again, you know, help where I can. Uh, well, you, you deserve to do stuff for yourself. Uh, you've had a pretty eventful life. You served your country, then you served your community. It's time to think a little bit about yourself while still serving as with a purpose where you can. Yeah. And you hit the nail on the head. A lot of people don't realize this, but uh, back in Vietnam era, when we were getting the war turned somewhere in the middle of it, I think it was Tet that really turned them against the it should have been popular before Tet, but uh, you know, they went from kind of chastising the war and, and the and the people that, that were managing it at the top to chastising the soldiers that actually were there fighting it. And, uh, of course, the rest is history. Uh, for many years, 
and right through the end of the war and when we came back, uh, the Vietnam veteran was basically ostracized and uh, forgotten about. Not that we were looking for a handout or anything, but it's the first time this country's really ever turned its back uh, like that on its veterans. And all veterans group going back to Korea, Vietnam, World War II, World War I, the Civil War, Spanish-American War, you know, they had their share of problems and so on, but uh, they never really got like the Vietnam veterans did for some reason. And I think a lot of the fellows, and I'm one of them, said, man, this is wrong. And, and a lot of guys did what they could, to, as you mentioned, say, hey, going forward, this end, and we got to, you know, we got to support these guys and these ladies and men and women join the service and do what they do for us. Uh, they deserve better than what we got. So I think, uh, you know, I take a lot of pride in being a part of that. And certainly the Vietnam generate the Vietnam servicemen and women uh, that did that are to be commended. And because uh, the, the newer generations of warriors, you know, they need that kind of support. And it, it definitely shows uh, the, the struggles you guys went through and to what we have now is night and day. And it's because of the struggles you went through, basically, was as as your your generation's uh, grandsons and sons were going off to this war. You guys all came together, not sitting together, but mindset together that these kids, these young men and women don't need to come home the way we did. Exactly. And and it showed as we came home. Every time I came back, there was different people greeting us in every airport we came to. There was always someone there to say, welcome home, shake our hands, hand us their babies, take pictures with and not spit on us like yeah. they did to you guys. So that's a big plus. And then having all these, I mean, there's too many organizations now, I think. But there's so many now. There's something for everybody. Yeah, yeah. It's it's uh, it's good. The what, what's happened and, and what's out there now. It's uh, it's it just never never should have happened. What happened, but it did. But I'm glad that it's no longer uh, like that out there. You, you know, your generation and the people. Every veteran, no matter what war they're in or what generation they're in, now and going forward, is going to have issues associated with you know, what he or she did and the effects it's going to have on them because you just don't go off to war and not come home uh, not affected in any fashion. You may not realize it at the time, but on you. So, oh, definitely. <laughs> and having a support system can help uh, a great deal, actually, in the long run. Definitely. It helps tremendously to have that support system uh, in your backyard or in that uh, group that you joined as you come home it may just be a group that you think is just going to do exercise, but they're actually helping your brain as well at the same time. So it actually, it helps you the whole mind, body, and spirit. Yeah. Well, how many tours did you do in Afghanistan? I, I did four, four total tours between the two of them. Wow. I had my, both my brothers are younger. My middle brother, Tom's gone. He passed about four years ago. He was a career Navy pilot. He served in the first Gulf war, uh, many years back and uh, after that he was in a while and then he he, he got out at, uh, after 27 years and went into private uh, he went into the uh, private if you will uh, but my younger brother Bob he uh, he's gone too he did two 18-month tours in Iraq and one 13-month tour in Afghanistan wow but he was not in the service he had been in the army as a young guy but got out <laughs> college degree and uh, went to work for the IRS as a special undercover agent. And in his, his, uh, and he was mandatorily retired at 50 because of the stress these guys work. A lot of people don't realize that, but there is a special, it may not be now, I don't know, but there are special units that do a lot of undercover work, particularly money laundering and drug and tax evasion. And he did that, but he, because of his training, he was assigned to the state department for three years and worked out in Africa. Uh, going around the, I guess it was divided at that time into four quadrants, and he did the top two quadrants uh, for three years, uh, working out of the different embassies, and picked up a lot of the local languages and customs and so on and so forth, and uh, got quite good at some of the, the linguistics over there. When he retired at 50, he, uh, we, my brother Tom and I always used to call him the uh, cross between Dirty Harry and Rambo. He just loved the action. <laughs> so he went to work he, he signed up and went to work for a uh, uh for a um i forget what y'all called them but it was a it was a civilian run organization that provided 
special uh, uh, specialties to the arm, you know, to the military over there that needed linguistics or, or uh, uh, evidence gathering types or explosive experts. So he, he worked for a private company as a specialist, linguistic specialist and a weapons uh, explosive specialist. And, that, and he ended up working with uh, 18 months in those fobs out of Iraq with, I don't know if it was the 82nd uh, division or not. It was born or infantry division. And he spent all his time uh, working with the soldiers out in the fobs. He just loved it out there. And, and then he went back, he came home, was home six months and said, I gotta, I gotta go back. So he went back again with the same company for 18 months doing the same thing. He came wow. back for about five months says, man, I, I, I still gotta go. And he, he volunteered with a different company, signed on with a different company, went to Afghanistan for 13 months doing the same basic stuff on the fobs. And he came back and, you know, when we were talking, after he got back, I said, Bob, you're crazy. Stay home. It's just it's tough as a duff. He said, I am. He said, I, he said, I don't, I don't give a lot of hope to Afghanistan, but I do think Iraq uh, might pull it through eventually. But uh, between the two countries, he was not, I guess he wasn't as impressed in, our, in Afghanistan as he was in Iraq. But anyway, he, he did, he did his share over there. Definitely. That's a lot of time over there in the dirt. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> in both countries. He ended up writing a book uh, uh, about his experience from the first time over in Iraq. And it was a, uh, a fictional book, but based obviously in some fact. And uh, I remember reading it was pretty, pretty telling. <laughs> some of the stuff that you all put up with. <laughs> some some uh, gnarly things. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so let's kind of transition into into your book now. Let's talk about uh, Land Psalm seven nineteen and and the, the interactions there and how it came into this book. Okay, uh, this is uh, the name of the book is Chariots in the Sky. It's a historical fiction. I wrote it that way. Uh, I didn't want to make it a uh, a, a uh, what do you call it a biography or an autobiography or a compilation of stories. There are a lot of them out there about you know, the Vietnam War and the, and the helicopter aspect and some really good ones. What I wanted to do was write a book and put the reader in the seat with the pilot. And, and if I did the right, if I did it right, the reader, when they got done, would say, my God, I was, my main character's called TJ. He's a Huey assault uh, helicopter pilot, infantry captain. And uh, I wanted the reader, when they got done, to say, my God, I was TJ. I lived what he lived and experienced <laughs> I really wanted to put him in the seat and in the middle of the action. So I basically wrote it as a first person historical fiction novel. I obviously drew on a lot of my experiences and those of the men I flew with over there. Uh, and it's embedded in real events. You know, the 101st was in the I-Corps and uh, Lamson uh, was a real uh, invasion that took place in February and March of uh, 1971. And um, many of the uh, the storyline and many of the ac actions that are depicted in there, I drew from things I saw, heard, or did myself or experienced. So it has a lot of realism to it. And I've, it's done quite well, I'm proud to say. And many of my reviewers uh, have echoed several things, one of them being they felt like they were living the uh, experience with TJ, which is one of the things I tried to accomplish uh, in writing the book. Uh, but the reason I wrote it was uh, many, many years ago, after I came back and got out, uh, I just wanted to forget about it, which I pretty much did. Uh, but I, in 1988, 87, 88, when uh, Oliver Stone put out his movie Platoon, that was the first movie in Vietnam that, uh, in my opinion, um, kind of captured the flavor of it, if you will, or the emotion. Two hours, he went a little over the top with some of his drama, but in two yeah. hours, you know, you kind of got a feel for what a lot of, you know, what we put up with, particularly the guys in the bush. And I think a lot of Vietnam veterans felt the same way. When I came out of the theater after seeing that movie, I looked at my wife and says, my God, Linda, I've just gone to Vietnam again. But <laughs> he inspired me, if you will, to to uh, to uh, think about producing a, a movie, because I'm a big movie buff. 
uh, about the Vietnam helicopter aspect of the war uh, because he did it from the ground perspective, the grunt, uh, and the helicopters are iconic to that war and were the major strategy in that, used as a major strategy in that war. And, you know, without the helicopters, the way it was fought anyway, you wouldn't have had a Vietnam War. Uh, so I thought making a movie similar to that about helicopter aspect would probably be a hit and, and be a, uh, like to see it happen. I had heard, uh, being a movie buff, that he had, he was going to produce a trilogy about Vietnam. So sometime after that movie, I gathered my thoughts. It was in early 1991. I reached out to him in a letter and said, hey, I've got this concept about a movie, and I understand you, you, you are going to do a trilogy. And Platoon was your first one. And, you know, I, I've got this idea I'd like to share with you. And I put a little bit in the, in the query letter to him. And about a month later, I, I got a letter back from him. And uh, he, he was very, uh, you know, being a Vietnam veteran himself, he was, he was really very cordial. And he said, look, he said, uh, I'm just paraphrasing. Um, I've, I've got, you know, I'm, I'm going to do a trilogy. My second one is in uh, post-production now. It'll be coming out pretty soon. And, and that was born on the 4th of July with Tom Hank, I mean, with Tom uh, Cruise. And he says, and I've got an idea for my third one. It's on the board because we're working on it now and it doesn't involve helicopters. He said, but what I'd recommend you do is, uh, you know, write it yourself or hook up with somebody and write a screenplay about the helicopter aspect of the war and then uh, see if you can't market it to some production companies. And he offered some suggestions and some books to look at and so on. So uh, I read that letter and I uh, read it a couple of times and set it aside for a while. And then I thought, well, now I'm inspired, if that's the right word. So I thought, <laughs> I'm going to, I think I'm going to try it. So I went out and bought a bunch of books and I spent the next year reading about screenplays and, and then wrote, uh, read some screenplays and then started uh, uh, drafting up a few things and, but well, I think I can do this. So I sat down when I was still working full time at a bank and I sat down and all my spare time started working on a screenplay. Uh, and ultimately, within about a year, wrote it. I titled it The Flying Pachyderms. My unit was called The Pachyderms in Vietnam. Um, and it was I wrote it as, as fiction, historical fiction uh, and uh, passed it around to a, a whole bunch of people to get their feedback. and. and reacted to it, but everybody that read it said, man, you really need to turn this into a book. Uh, and if you want to get it on the screen, you probably have a better shot of getting a, a book. And, and if it catches fire, you might get a screen uh, screen uh, play out of it. Uh, but I had my mindset was to try and you know, uh, you know, sell it as a screenplay. So I eventually uh, finished it to my satisfaction and uh, I wrote query letters to 10 production companies out in Hollywood. And I heard back from three of them wanting to read the screenplay. So I sent them each a copy and two of them got back to me within about a month and said, you know, it's a good job, but you know, we're going to pass. And then the other one, which is called Biltmore Pictures, which is still a big company in Hollywood, uh, reached out to me uh, and said, Hey, we've read this. We like it. We're going to push it up our hierarchy of, uh, staff here and see what we think and uh, we might uh, auction it from you and see where we go which i guess in the movie business if they option that means they're interested and then they try and get the elements and to put something together i said that's fantastic well about three or four weeks later i get a call from some uh, lady at their at biltmore that was pretty high up in their hierarchy and said we're still interested i need to get some more information from you so we talked for about again a long time and then uh, it was about a month after that, I heard back from them in the country, but said, uh, we're going to pass on it. Uh, we have a war genre in post-production, which is going to be released very shortly. And if it does well, we already have a sequel on the books and potentially a sequel outline for a second sequel, if that one does good. So we're, we're going to have to pass. And, uh, you know, it, I got close, but no cigar. And that, that was really exciting, but it was also a little bit of a downer. But the movie they had in post-production was uh, Sniper with Tom Sni uh, with Tom Berenger, which obviously did very well. And they did do a sequel after that one. So I lost out the Berenger. In <laughs> <laughs> uh, so after that, I, I got tired and I just boxed everything up, put it away. Uh, 
but I kept a couple copies of my screenplay lying around. And over the years, you know, people would want to read it. And so I, I don't know how many people read it over the next uh, 10 years or so, but you know, a lot of people uh, I would give a copy to and they read it and get it back to me. But everybody said, Larry, make a book out of it. Just make a book out of it. Uh, so I, I was just burned out and kind of just kept it to the side. But as, as 2018, 2019 rolls in, I had that I had that story and I, I really wanted to try and get it out there. So I thought, what the heck, I think I'll try and write a book. So going into the end of 2019, I pulled out the box, started you know, refreshing my memory a little bit about my research and the screenplay and all that. And of course, 2020 rolls around January, February, we have COVID. And then COVID got real big there in February. And then I sat down and said, you know, what the hell, I'm going to write this book. I'm not going anywhere for six or seven months. So uh, I just started writing. And uh, by the end of the summer, I had written a, a first draft of the, of the uh, manuscript for the book. And uh, then I went out shopping for a publisher. I found one published authority. They, they took me on. Uh, as they say, the rest is history. The book's been uh, published back in April of 26th of the, April 26th of this year. And it's on several websites and available through uh, those, and uh, you can order through any bookstore you want. Um, so I'm, I'm very proud of that. Uh, a lot of good comments can got from it. The story itself, uh, let me touch on Lamson real quick, because that's, that's part of the story. It occurs maybe in the first half of the book, and then it goes into the, the second half, goes into the rest of the year and other things that happens. Uh, but Lamson, in a short uh, just taking a minute or two, Lamson 719 was the last major American operation of the Vietnam War. We were really into uh, turning it over to the uh, South Vietnamese, uh, and this Lamson operation was designed uh, by the uh, MACV, the South Vietnamese and the high-level American uh, planning group down in Saigon. And what they wanted to do was... Uh, go in as deep as possible into Laos and cut off the trail and set back the, uh, the North Vietnamese supply chain for at least a year or two. The, the previous year in 1970, Nixon authorized invasion into Cambodia to do the same thing. And it was, it was a short-lived invasion, but it was highly successful. And when the press and everybody in Washington got a hold of it, they went after Nixon and he had to call it off in about 45 days or so after the operation started. But it really put a dent in the in the uh, North Vietnamese uh, supplies and operations, set them back over a year down there. So they wanted to do the same thing up north in, um, in Laos there, because um, a lot of the stuff was coming in there and then being shipped down through the Ashaw Valley and further south into two core and, or three core and two core. So, uh, but uh, they wanted it to be an all uh, south operation because Nixon can't commit troops outside of uh, South Vietnam anymore. So the plan was to send the uh, South Vietnamese Army and, and some Marine units into Laos and let them go in 50, 60 miles and set up fire bases along this, what was called Route 9, a dirt road on both sides of the road on the higher elevations. There were ridge lines and high, not necessarily mountains, but 3,000 foot uh, high hills and so on and, and let these the mechanized units go down Route 9 and cut a big path deep into Laos and, and then destroy any caches they find and take on any NVA they find. Uh, it was hastily uh, planned and put together and uh, not well thought out. But uh, anyway, we activated case time, brought in the aviation units. Uh, they brought up 22,000 Vietnamese uh, South Vietnamese military men, mostly army, some Marines, and they started uh, started across the border uh, on uh, Mar on February the first, uh, and we started setting up fire bases the next day uh, inside Laos on both sides of Route Nine. And as they made a little progress, we were putting fire bases further down Route Nine. And within two weeks, well, within the end of the first week of putting them in there things started to go south for them real quick. Uh, at the height of the battle, there was only like 22,000 South Vietnamese forces. 
And by the end of the second week, there's over 65,000 North Vietnamese Army troops uh, pushed down in all up and down Route 9. So it was a lopsided battle within by the end of the first week going into the second week. But the Americans, we provided all the air support. We would go in and help them set up their fire bases, resupply them with troops and uh, ammunition and food and building supplies and take out their wounded and bring in fresh troops. By the end of the second week, uh, uh, things went really bad. And from that time until we got them out of there on April the 6th, which was basically eight weeks of operations, which was supposed to be a four month operation, uh, not two, uh, we suffered severely. Uh, our helicopter force did. Uh, let me just share with you a couple numbers here. It's staggering. Uh, of the approximately 800 helicopters that were available to support Lamson 719, 108 were lost in Laos. 618 were classified as having sustained battle damage. 20% of those we couldn't use. We just used them as scrap to repair the others. And uh, we lost 72 uh, helicopter crew members, 59 wounded, and 17 MIAs all in the span of six, just 60 days. This was just the helicopter. Wow. Was the most intense operation for helicopter pilot, American helicopter pilots of the entire war. Uh, when we'd fly across the border, we'd figure it was 50-50 chance we would come back. When we, and the, the, my hat's off to the Huey, Cobra pilots, and the Loach pilots. Uh, they had to stay down basically on the deck, nap of the earth. Uh, they didn't get to go up. I flew Chinooks. We'd go into Laos high up at six, 7,000 feet, get over the bases we, we would support, and then we'd just do a, almost a 45-degree angle dive and just spiral right down over the fire basin until we got close and yank back on, the, on our cyclic and pull up on the thrust rod and the helicopter would damn near shake itself to death. We only did sling lows, and then they'd bring us in over to fire base. We'd drop them off and get out of there. From the time we got below a thousand feet until we got above a thousand, we were shot at by everything. Machine guns were coming at us, 20 millimeter, 40 millimeter cannons, RPGs, and we get down near the ground, artillery rounds going off, mortar rounds going off. In some cases, towards the end of the end of March, some of those fire bases were being overrun by NVA tanks. Helicopters up until then had never really, or at least our helicopters had never really seen much action <laughs> with tanks, but but we did. <laughs> so it was, it was a very intense 60 days. Uh, it sounds like it, you know, a lot of, a lot of heroic moves going in and out of Laos. And just the numbers you, you mentioned, that's in, that's insanity. How many were damaged, how many were lost. And then of course the, the human capital that was lost in that battle as well, just oh, with yeah. the helicopter crewmen, not, not as, uh, to mention whatever infantrymen or others that were on the ground that we lost as well. That That's just amazing. And, uh, Thanks for sharing that with us. Yeah, that's that's the thrust of the book. I, I, you know, that's a story that you know that wanted to be told. There is some other books out there about it, and they're good. Uh, this one I wrote again, like uh, like I said, a first person historical fiction with a main character. I wanted the I wanted the reader to to be there, and uh, I, based on the feedback I've gotten over the over the last five months, most people feel like. They were right there. So that mission accomplished. <laughs> awesome. And it's funny you mentioned Sniper with Tom Berenger. The other night I was uh, working on a paper and I watched the, the seventh installment of, of Sniper from 2017, <laughs> wow. Sniper Ultimate Kill, and Tom Berenger was in that one as well. Was he? <laughs> yes. That was a lifetime job for him. <laughs> yeah, so 93, and that, was, uh, that one was filmed 2017, and there's still one more I haven't seen, Sniper's, Sniper Assassins or something. So that's the last one, 2020. Well, he did an incredible job in uh, Platoon. Yeah. Job in Sniper 1. I, I saw one and two, which I enjoyed, but I haven't seen, haven't seen the others. I didn't realize there was that many of them. I guess I missed a few in the, in the middle there. But. <laughs> Either. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. So where, where can people get your book? Is it on uh, all of electronic points or is it a print book as well? It's both. Uh, you can go to my website, and it's lowercase LarryFreeland.com, 
and you can get a flavor for the book and you can see the reviews that I've got posted out there and there are probably 20 or more. And then there's various articles from newspapers and magazines and uh, some veterans groups that I've got posted. And then you can, uh, there's five sites you can go to and you, you can you can go to any one of them. They're on my website, um, Barnes and Noble, uh, uh, the big one, uh, uh, the grill in the room, so to speak, Amazon. <laughs> and then there's BAM, and there's, uh, oh, gee, let's see here. BAM, and then there's a couple others. But if you go to the website, uh, they'll all be up there. Barnes & Noble, Amazon, Kaboo, K-O-B-O, BAM, Books A Million, and IndieBound. Or you can go, if, you have, you know, if you're a bookie and you got a, 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 your favorite bookstore, you can go to your bookstore and they can order it directly through there for you. Awesome. So it's, and it's in paperback and it's in uh, all forms of electronic. So the different, uh, uh, all five of these support that have the electronic version on them. And these websites that I mentioned. So either, either paperback or electronic. Awesome. And I think, uh, most people, they go, well, it's probably 50-50 right now. People like to either touch paper or feel it on their tablet or iPhone or, or even the audio ones now. People like to have books read to them, make them feel, I guess, like someone's talking to them while they're driving. So that's pretty cool as well. Yeah, I've been asked if we had it in audio yet, and I, I, the answer is no. That's a little more expensive of a conversion, but if it does, if it does goes into next year and really does well and takes off, which I'm hoping it will, it's beginning to build some legs, uh, we may look at putting it out in audio too. Awesome, man. Larry, if you could give advice to uh, a youngster who wants to write or someone like uh, like me who's been out of the Army a little while now and is deciding to write a fictional book, what would you tell them? That's a good question. Um, well, first of all, I'd say, you know, if you want to do it, you need to stay focused, make a commitment, and then just, you know, just don't lose sight of it. Um, Number one, but that's true in anything you pursue in life. But when it comes to writing a book, I, uh, I would uh, the most the most successful re- writers are avid readers uh, of books, and uh, you know they read different books and they get uh, they see what other authors are doing, how they're doing it, and they read current books so they see what's you know what's what's moving, what people like most. So they kind of stay current in the in the book world, if you will, by by writing uh, by reading books. Uh, and then, as far as actually writing a book, if you've not written one before, uh, you know, it'd be a little a little harder, uh, I would think. Uh, but you you would need to do a little bit of uh, I'd, I'd get a book about how to write a book, uh, <laughs> and and just you know read it and. Uh, I'll tell you a good book I read. I don't remember the name of it, but it's written by uh, by the author Stephen King. Uh, it was recommended to me by my publisher way back, and uh, it, it's a story about him. But it's 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 telling you how he goes about got in, got into writing and how he developed his skills and and how as a writer, of course, he's obviously very successful over the years. He's a genre writer and you know the sci-fi, if you will, and, and horror, horror fiction stuff. But uh, it was an intriguing book for me, and I found it very helpful. And I cannot remember the name of it. That's not cool. But if you go to, uh, if you look him up uh, on, on Google and look at some of the books he's, uh, and, and pull up the books he's written, it's going to be listed on there very clearly. Uh, but he, that was a good, good read for me. But I, I definitely want to read a book about how to write a book. Uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't get wrapped up in it, but I would, it would give you a good idea. And then just have a concept. Uh, sit down and develop your concept uh, on a piece of paper. Come up with your storyline, if you will. Uh, you know, your main character or characters, what, what, what you kind of want to convey. If you have a message, you don't have to have a message, but if you've got one or you know, if you want a theme in your book, your theme to kind of ring out through the, through the story. Uh, and then uh, kind of go from there. Writers major people that write have their own kind of techniques they come up with mine personally uh that's my first book i've just finished my next one i'm i'm signing on uh, i'm going to write a trilogy i'm writing a trilogy uh, uh and the first book i i matter of fact just finished 
the the first manuscript draft earlier today. I would struggle with the last chapter on that one for a while, but now I'm going to sleep on it for a couple of weeks, have my wife look at it, get her feedback, and then uh, anything she wants me to do, I'll do, and then uh, sit, let it sit for a week or two, and then read it cold turkey from front to back, and if I'm satisfied, then I'll submit it to my publisher, uh, who will, will take it from there. And well, we'll go through the editing process, which can is could be long, and uh, that's all. But eventually, you know, come out the other end and, and and be published, and then I'll start working on the on the second uh, book in the trilogy. Although I did write a overview, executive summary, if you will, or memo about the trilogy, and I did in each book, I've got a little story, concept, characters, some plot points, if you will. So I have a, a basic high-level outline to, to help sell the trilogy. Uh, and then, like I said, I just finished the first draft of the first book. So, Outstanding. Uh, thanks again for coming on to the Misfit Nation. This is Larry Freeland, Chariots in the Sky. Thanks for taking some of your time to be with us on the show, and I hope you have a good rest of your day. Well, thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. It was great, great uh, talking with you and sharing this, and you have a good rest. That was awesome, chatting with Larry Freeland. Thanks for sharing your stories with us, and of course, talking about your book, Chariots in the Sky. Be sure to check it out wherever you get your books, online or in actual bookstores. Support local businesses. So you know how we do this. Thanks for taking some of your time to spend with us on The Misfit Nation. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and share the link as much as possible. If you want to, please become a supporter to help us carry this thing on. We appreciate you. If you know someone that would bring that energy and have a great story to the show, have them visit our website, themisfitnation.com, and reach out to us. As always, till next time, be humble, stay hungry, and keep hustling, because we are... (laughs) 